Hi, gang. Before we get rolling with today's show, I wanted to encourage you to check out the Civics and Coffee podcast, which recently had me on for an interview about President John and John Quincy Adams. You may remember the show's host, Alicia, from a recent episode of Abridged Presidential Histories when I talked with her about the progressivism of Theodore Roosevelt. Welp, this time I join Alicia's show to talk about why the Adams men were so unpopular in their time and why John Quincy Adams is my favorite of America's early presidents. That's the Civics and Coffee podcast. Go check it out. The time has come, the fight is on, we pick the man to run. For president, Ohio sent our noble, worthy son. The man we need, the man to lead our strong and mighty craft. Through storm at sea, to victory, it's William Howard Taft. Ah, get on a raft with Taft, boys, get on the winning boat. The man worthwhile with a friendly smile will get the honest boat. He'll save the country, sure, boys, from Brian, Hurst, and Kraft. So all join in, we're sure to win. Get on a raft with Taft. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 27, William Howard Taft, Big Chief. No president is as thoroughly defined by their relationship with their predecessor as William Howard Taft. Taft won the White House because Theodore Roosevelt wanted him to, and then Taft lost the White House because Theodore Roosevelt wanted him to. During Taft's four years in the White House, his once BFF relationship with TR fell apart, splitting the GOP and breaking Taft's heart in the process. But to boil Taft's story down to only his relationship with Roosevelt would be a disservice to Taft. This is a guy who served as civilian governor of the Philippines when they were in revolt. He's the only president to also serve as chief justice of the Supreme Court. Taft is much more than his doomed friendship with Roosevelt. Best friends for never. William Howard Taft was born September 15, 1857 in Cincinnati, Ohio. His mother, Louisa Maria Touré was a woman's suffrage advocate and graduate of my wife's alma mater, Mount Holyoke, which has never been beaten in football. His father was Alfonso Taft, an early and very well-connected member of the Republican Party who served as President Grant's Attorney General and Secretary of War in the 1870s. And this may shock you, it's good for a young lawyer's career when their father served as Attorney General. And a young lawyer is what Taft will soon become. After graduating Yale, where he graduated second in his class, was a champion wrestler, and joined the Skull and Bones Secret Society, which had originally been co-founded by his father. Man, that guy had coattails. Taft graduated Cincinnati Law School in 1880 and became a young, successful lawyer. And then he became a young, successful, married lawyer with an ambitious wife. Helen Louise Heron, known as Nellie, was the daughter of a politically well-connected Ohio family, and she had dreamed of being married to a president of the United States ever since she was 16 years old when her family made a trip to the White House during the Benjamin Harrison administration. It was the most glamorous thing she had ever seen, and she wanted to be part of it. 
Nellie married Taft on June 19, 1886, and would always push and support Taft's political ambitions, even when he would rather, say, be a judge than a president. This tension between Taft's desire to be a judge and Nellie, his family, and everyone else's desire for him to become a president will be a theme throughout this episode. Taft's intelligence, his affability, his family connections, and his judicial ambition made for a quick, rising career. In 1889, when Taft was a 32-year-old judge in Ohio, he asked the governor of Ohio to recommend him to President Benjamin Harrison for an open role on the Supreme Court, which is either an incredible sign of overconfidence and entitlement, or just a really smart play to put himself on the president's radar. If the latter, it worked brilliantly. Harrison didn't nominate Taft for the nation's highest court, but he did name Taft U.S. Solicitor General, the lawyer who represents the U.S. government in cases before the Supreme Court. At 32! Dude! Over the next two years, Taft won 16 of the 18 cases he argued before the Supreme Court, and he developed a practice known as confessing error, which is basically when the U.S. government admits it should not have won a case after new information comes to light. He is very much a lawful good type of guy. This is also around the time he met and befriended Theodore Roosevelt Jr., who was in D.C. as a civil service commissioner at the time. We will get more on Taft and TR later. Lots more. In 1900, Taft, who was by then a federal appellate judge and dean of the Cincinnati Law School, was summoned to the White House by President William McKinley, who wanted to make him a life-changing offer. McKinley wanted Taft to lead the civilian government of the recently conquered Philippine Islands and their 7 million inhabitants. The islands had been taken from Spain during the Spanish-American War just a year or two earlier and already were very much in revolt against American rule. They wanted independence. Taft was surprised by the offer. Why, I'm not the man you want, Taft said. To begin with, I have never approved of keeping the Philippines. McKinley was ready for that. Quote, you don't want them any less than I do, but we have got them. And in dealing with them, I think I can trust a man who didn't want them better than I can trust a man who did. And then McKinley sweetened the pot. If Taft said yes to McKinley now, McKinley promised to name him to the Supreme Court later. Taft was still unsure, though. He was a young man and probably in good shape to reach the Supreme Court even without McKinley's help. And that civilian governor role would be hard work. But his wife and his brother encouraged him to take the job. So he said yes. Taft's time in the Philippines was a mixed bag of progress, racism, misguided good intentions, paternalism, and guerrilla warfare. Let's start with a little background on the Philippines. The Philippines are an archipelago of more than 7,000 islands located roughly between Taiwan and Indonesia over on the western edge of the Pacific Ocean. They were, quote-unquote, discovered by a Spanish fleet in 1521, which named and then claimed the islands in the name of the Spanish king, Philip. Philip. Philippines. Get it? 
the Spaniards moved in, spread Catholicism, and milked the islands for everything they were worth. And they treated the natives pretty awfully in the process. That awful treatment of the locals, you may be shocked to hear, inspired more than a few revolts against Spanish rule. In 1896, the latest revolt was led by a Filipino named Emilio Aguinaldo, who, you know, wanted independence. Aguinaldo's revolt failed, and he was banished, but when the Americans declared war on Spain a couple years later, they reached out to Aguinaldo to secure his help in the war against Spain. What came next is very unclear, in large part because American generals on the scene refused to put anything in writing. But Aguinaldo claims he was promised Filipino independence after the war, and the Americans claim no such offer was made. I'll let you judge who you trust based on what comes next. On May 1st, 1898, the U.S. Navy destroyed the Spanish Navy at Manila. But, well, Spain still had a big garrison in Manila. What do you do about that? The answer was Aguinaldo. Two weeks after the defeat of the Spanish Navy, the Americans smuggled Aguinaldo back into the Philippines, where he quickly reawakened the revolution, secured the countryside, and laid siege to the Spanish garrison in Manila. But that's when the American-Filipino partnership began to break down. The Spanish garrison wanted an honorable way out of the siege, but surrendering to a bunch of non-white revolutionaries like the Filipinos would never be honorable. So instead, the Spanish and American military leaders came to an agreement. The American army launched a fake assault on the Spanish garrison, where the Americans and Spaniards both fired over each other's heads, but aimed for the hearts of any Filipinos who joined in. The Americans were allowed to capture the capital city, the Filipinos were kept outside, and the Spanish wiped their hands of the Philippines. The archipelago was the Americans' problem now. And Aguinaldo was presented with an unexpected dilemma. The Americans were inside Manila. The Filipinos were being kept outside Manila. And more and more American soldiers were arriving from overseas. On February 4th, 1899, three American soldiers on night patrol outside Manila crossed paths with four Filipino soldiers. One of the Americans said, Halt! One of the Filipinos said, Halto! Back! And then the Americans opened fire. When the American generals heard what happened, they made no effort to de-escalate. An immediate attack was ordered along the entire perimeter outside Manila. The surprised Filipino revolutionaries were slaughtered. 3,000 died in a single day. The Philippine-American War was on. And it was a brutal and ugly war. I'm talking torture, burning villages, concentration camps. At one point, an American general ordered his men to shoot anyone over the age of 10 on sight. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos were killed in this war, and 4,000 American soldiers died. It was not good. Back in the United States, the war was not talked about. Or at least, if the McKinley administration had its way, it wouldn't be. McKinley's administration did its best to hide the guerrilla war because 
guerrilla wars are kind of bad for re-election campaigns. The war was over, they declared. Victory parades were held, and Taft's dispatched to the Philippines, where he'd soon replace the military governor as the archipelago's new civilian governor, was a big part of the show. But Taft's arrival in the Philippines was not the mission-accomplished banner everyone pretended it was. Aguinaldo was still out there, leading the revolution. American and Filipino soldiers were dying in the thousands and committing horrible atrocities to one another. According to General Arthur MacArthur, whose son Douglas would become famous battling the Japanese armies in the Philippines during World War II, According to Arthur MacArthur, the United States Army controlled only 117 square miles out of a total of 116,000. The civilian transfer of power was, at this point, a bit of a joke. The money and supplies, they still all went to the U.S. Army, which launched a new offensive against Aguinaldo's guerrillas around the time of Taft's arrival. When Taft heard accounts of American soldiers waterboarding prisoners, burning villages, and committing other atrocities, he began pursuing General MacArthur's removal, an effort that succeeded after Aguinaldo's capture on March 23, 1901, but MacArthur's replacement was little better. I hate to say it, but the consensus appears to be that the scorched-earth tactics of the Americans eventually worked. To borrow a phrase once said of the Romans, the American army had created a wasteland and called it peace. But even before the resistance had ended, the rebuilding had begun. Taft was paternalistic at best, and a tad racist at worst. He called the Filipinos his, quote, little brown brothers, which, you know, is kind of sweet for the time. But he also wrote, quote, the population of the islands is made up of a vast mass of ignorant, superstitious people, well-intentioned, light-hearted, temperate, somewhat cruel, domestic, and fond of their families, and deeply wedded to the Catholic Church. These people are the greatest liars it has been my fortune to meet. In many respects, nothing but grown-up children. They need the training of 50 or 100 years before they shall even realize what Anglo-Saxon what Anglo-Saxon liberty is. It's not a great quote. But he is genuinely trying to help. Taft created healthcare and transportation networks. He established a constitution and a judiciary, and he opened so many schools that his wife Nellie wrote, Education Follows the Flag. Taft also did not grant the Filipinos the constitutional rights to trial by their peers or the right to bear arms. Those were probably the Anglo-Saxon liberties he thought were 50 years away. Taft's biggest contribution, though, might have been his negotiations with the Pope to return a ton of land that had been taken by the church during Spanish rule and distributing it to tens of thousands of Filipino peasants at low-cost mortgages. In the middle of Taft's stint in the Philippines, the man who sent him there, William McKinley, was slain by an assassin. Taft's good friend, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt, ascended to the presidency and then started trying to bring Taft home. Roosevelt offered Taft an opening on the Supreme Court, but Taft told Roosevelt he couldn't return yet because his work in the Philippines remained undone. 
But Roosevelt's not exactly the kind of guy to get discouraged when he hears no. In 1903, Roosevelt found the loophole that would bring his friend Taft back to Washington, an offer to be Roosevelt's new Secretary of War. As Secretary of War, Taft would technically still be responsible for the Philippines, so he wouldn't be abandoning a project half done. Taft was unsure, but his wife, brother, and Roosevelt were positive. He had to take this opportunity, so he said yes. On December 23, 1903, Taft set sail from the Philippines back to the United States. In his three years on the island, the Philippine-American War had ended, a government had been created, education established, and land redistributed. Was he paternalistic? Yes. Was the Philippine-American War horrible? Yes. But I get the sense that Taft really tried to do the best he could by the Philippine people. He also showed that he could be an effective executive leader. Back in Washington, D.C., Taft quickly proved he was no ordinary Secretary of War. Roosevelt had told him to expect as much when he'd been offered the job, and Taft spent the next five years as a virtual assistant president to the famously energetic Roosevelt. Taft spent so much time traveling the world on Roosevelt's behalf that the War Department auditor received a letter that read, quote, As a taxpayer and citizen, I beg to ask the following question. How many days, or if not days, hours, has Secretary of War William Taft spent at his desk in Washington? The author of that letter may not have been happy, but Roosevelt was delighted with the performance of his good friend Taft. In 1906, Roosevelt, who had already publicly pledged not to seek re-election, summoned Taft and Nellie to the White House where, after dinner, he threw himself into a library chair and said through closed eyes, I am the seventh son of a seventh daughter, and I have clairvoyant powers. He pointed to Taft. There is something hanging over his head. I cannot make out what it is. At one time, it looks like the presidency. Then again, it looks like the chief justiceship. Taft's wife Nellie spoke up. Make it the presidency. Then Taft had to say, Make it the chief justiceship. Nellie would win first. Roosevelt stuck to his pledge and refused to seek re-election in 1908. Instead, the 50-year-old lame duck president campaigned hard for his good friend, Taft, including securing his Republican nomination. The Democrats, meanwhile, fielded William Jennings Bryan, who was running his third campaign for President of the United States. The 1908 campaign was interesting in that both candidates made heavy use of new audio record technology. Supporters of Taft and Bryan would meet at big parties where they played dueling records of their candidate giving speeches, singing, or telling stories or jokes. It was kind of like a weird DJ rap battle. You might play William Jennings Bryan giving a speech, and then I might override you with Taft singing a song, and then you might counter with Bryan telling a joke, and then I'd hit you with Taft giving a speech. It was bizarre. In the end, Taft clobbered Bryan 321 to 162 in the Electoral College, and 7.7 to 6.4 million in the popular vote. To the delight of his wife Nellie, the Taft presidency had arrived.
And so, on March 4, 1909, 51-year-old William Howard Taft, the experienced jurist, former civilian governor of the Philippines, and hand-picked successor of Theodore Roosevelt, was sworn in as the 27th President of the United States in the Senate chamber after a blizzard canceled the outdoor inauguration ceremony. That might be a bad omen. What did the nation and the world look like when he was sworn in? Let's look around. Internationally, the aging Ottoman Empire was falling apart, and it was causing a lot of stress for everyone around it. The Austro-Hungarian Empire outright annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina from the Ottomans in 1908, an event known as the Bosnian Crisis. This ticked off a lot of Austria's neighbors and will contribute to everyone being all too happy to declare war on each other in 1914. Domestically, the progressive movement was on the rise in the United States. After decades of watching robber barons and corrupt politicians gather all the nation's wealth at the top, the accidental president, Theodore Roosevelt, had shown these plutocrats could be stopped and there was a limit to their power. Democratically elected candidates were using the power of the government to break up monopolies that were price-gouging consumers, they introduced safety standards into food the Americans ate so it wouldn't kill them, and they preserved environmental wonders so they couldn't be exploited and polluted by corporate interests. The Republican progressives had a clear path to reshaping the country, so long as they could avoid tripping over themselves. Unfortunately, that's exactly what they did. President Taft continued Roosevelt's progressive agenda in a lot of big ways. He got the ball rolling on modern progressive income tax system, and he set aside more land for conservation than TR had done, and he opened more antitrust lawsuits than TR had done. But a personality spat between members of his administration spilled out into the open and turned his best friend and predecessor, Theodore Roosevelt, against him splitting the Republican Party in two and opening the door to the first Democrat in the White House since 1896. The trouble started almost immediately after Taft took office when he decided to take on tax reform. At that point in U.S. history, the government was still funded solely by tariffs on international trade. This was bad for two reasons. One, it was very regressive. Tariffs made everyday goods cost more, and the brunt of this fell on everyday Americans, who were paying inflated prices for food, clothes, and other goods. Two, it was hurting America's ability to sell stuff abroad. In 1909, the average tariff between U.S. and Europe was 24%, and the average tariff between European countries was 10%. So if you're in Europe, it's going to be much cheaper to buy stuff from Germany, France, and England than from the United States, which is bad for American business. But here's the thing. If you lower the tariff, you need to make up the lost government revenue somewhere else. You can cut spending, but, well, I mean, someone has to pay for the Army, Navy, building the Panama Canal, etc., so you need to find new income. That's where Taft and the progressives latched onto the idea of a progressive income tax. The idea was you could pass a tax that only affected the wealthiest Americans, those plutocrats who had multiple houses, servants, the works, while reducing the burden on Americans struggling to get by. If the question is, 
Can that rich person afford their fourth yacht? Versus, can 1,000 hungry Americans afford food for their kids? Who cares if that rich person can't afford their fourth yacht? Let's tax them so the children can eat. The challenge to this was the Supreme Court. The first American income tax was passed by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War to help pay for the war. Higher earners paid a higher percent of their incomes, and lower earners didn't pay anything at all. But this was repealed during Reconstruction in 1872. In 1894, Democratic President Grover Cleveland tried to get an income tax on the books again, but the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. So, for Taft and the Progressives to get an income tax now, they would need a constitutional amendment a bill that passed the House, the Senate, and was then ratified by three-fourths of state legislatures. A huge lift that's very hard to do, which is why we've only passed 27 constitutional amendments in 230 years. So, Taft called a special session of Congress to lower the tariff and begin the process to amend the Constitution. But then, his affable, easygoing nature got the best of him. The trouble is Taft called the session, stated his goals on lowering the tariff and getting that amendment, and then he became totally uninvolved. And when I say totally, I mean totally. He didn't campaign for it. He didn't pressure members of Congress. He stayed away, coming on the heels of the highly energetic Roosevelt, who you just know would have been out there working the press and talking Congress's ears off. This lack of effort made it look like Taft didn't care, and rumors began to spread that he was secretly in the pocket of big business. But that's not the case. Taft, the old jurist, simply had a very old-school view of the separation of powers between the government's branches. Remember how T.R. bucked 100 years of tradition by saying a president could do anything the Constitution didn't explicitly forbid? Taft was simply going back to the norm and saying, That's not how it works. The president can only do what the Constitution expressly allows the president to do. In this case, the Constitution said the president could call a special session of Congress, but it didn't say the president could lobby Congress or shape legislation. That was Congress's job, and so Taft stayed out of it. As a result, the legislation wasn't as potent as the progressives had hoped. That 24% tariff rate only came down a few points to 21%, which was still far higher than the average European tariff of 10%. The amendment process did successfully get off the ground, but ratification by three-fourths of the states would take time, and so it wouldn't be completed until Woodrow Wilson's administration, far too late to help Taft's progressive street cred. And that's largely how Taft's presidency would go quietly moving the ball forward, not celebrating first downs and no touchdown dances. But the thing is, Americans kind of love touchdown dances. And due to that lack of celebration, it didn't feel like much was getting done. What Americans would notice was Taft's spectacular blow-up with Theodore Roosevelt. The Pinchot-Ballinger affair, as it's called, is incredibly dumb. Gifford Pinchot was the first head of the U.S. Forest Service and a holdover from the Roosevelt administration. Richard Ballinger was the Taft-appointed Secretary of the Interior. Basically, he was Pinchot's boss, 
When Ballinger came in and made some decisions that Pinchot didn't like, Pinchot ran to the press, accused Ballinger, a former corporate lawyer, of being in the pocket of big business, and accused Taft of corruption, saying Taft was making decisions about forest land that benefited the businesses that had contributed to his campaign. When Taft saw this in the press, he was not happy. Nobody wants to see their underlings squabbling, and they especially don't want to be accused of corruption by them. After a congressional inquiry found Taft and Ballinger innocent of Pinchot's accusations, Taft felt he had no choice but to fire Pinchot, who really does come off as a guy who just didn't know how to handle not getting his way. Unfortunately for Taft, it didn't end there. Pinchot, once fired, ran to Teddy Roosevelt, the man who had first appointed him. Pinchot gave Teddy a very incomplete and favorably edited retelling of the affair, and TR began to think that maybe Taft was in the pocket of big business. Taft began to think that maybe he had made a mistake by promoting Taft as his heir. And by February 12, 1912, Roosevelt decided that by God he must run for re-election to save the country from that bumbling fool Taft who was ruining Roosevelt's legacy with his weak leadership. Now, normally, I cover presidential campaigns in my episodes about the winners. But Wilson's episode is going to have a lot of other ground to cover with World War I and a million other things. So I'm going to dive into the election of 1912 here, which is frankly fitting, because it's kind of more about William Taft and Theodore Roosevelt anyway. When T.R. ran for president in 1912, he ran as an even more bombastic and extreme version of the guy we covered in our previous episodes. He was tired of judges overruling parts of his agenda, so judicial independence had to go. He wanted judges elected directly by the American people, and he wanted their opinions subject to reversal by popular referendum. Roosevelt also wanted to create commissions to regulate monopolies and protect labor. This was his progressive future. Taft wanted to stay the course. The current plan, which used to be Roosevelt's plan of using existing antitrust law to erode corporate power in the courts, was good enough. Infringing on the independence of the judiciary and creating commissions with new power to regulate business was equivalent to throwing the Constitution into the paper shredder, and Taft warned the American people that once you start tearing that Constitution up, you really have no idea where things could go. Outside the Republican Party, Democrat Woodrow Wilson, who we will come to know better down the road, wanted to banish monopolies and expand small business access to credit to level the commercial playing field. He also called for the speedy reduction of tariffs, something TR had never tried and Taft had kind of come up short in, as mentioned earlier. And because this is possibly the most progressive election of all time, there was also a third party, or is it fourth party at this point, socialist in the race, Eugene Debs who we first met as a labor organizer during the Great Pullman Strike of 1894. Debs was carrying the socialist banner and calling for the nationalization of transportation and communication networks, banks, and food productions, so that these sectors could be run with the goal of what's best for the people, which is, you know, cheaper prices and better service. Instead of everything operating in pursuit of the goal what makes the most money for stockholders and board members? 
which is typically higher prices and lower employee wages. Keep in mind, this is also before the communist revolution in Russia, so there are no communist or socialist nations out there yet, just socialist ideas among the world's lower classes. So, those are the four candidates. And it will be four candidates, because this is the first presidential election with primaries in the states. Not all the states, just 13 of them. But for the first time, candidates had a chance to campaign for the votes of the people before the national conventions. And, wouldn't you know it, the charismatic Roosevelt beat Taft in most of those Republican primaries. But, wouldn't you know it, party leaders at the convention were more loyal to the current president, Taft, than the former president, Roosevelt, so they rewarded a bunch of the contested delegates to Taft and sunk TR's nomination, even though he probably should have won. It might not surprise you that TR did not take that lying down. Roosevelt bolted the Republican Party and showed up at the Progressive Party convention, which, this may surprise a modern audience, was actually the most overtly religious party of the day. In the convention hall that was singing hymns and praising God, Roosevelt declared, We stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. Yeah, it was really feisty stuff. The 1912 campaign played out dramatically on the campaign trail and in the newspapers. In the press, it was fascinating. Each candidate would take turns producing and spitting out well-thought editorials, arguing why their positions would perform better than the platforms of their opponents. For any of you who are policy wonks, this battle in the press was totally the election for you. On the campaign trail, though, well, Roosevelt slung insults at Taft with gusto, calling him a puzzlewit, fathead, and honey fuggler. Taft, for his part, tried to meet Venom with Venom, but it just wasn't in his nature. Instead, Taft could be found weeping in his car, lamenting, Roosevelt was my closest friend. It's really, really sad. On the eve of the election, American historian Henry Adams, yeah, the grandson of President John Quincy Adams and the great-grandson of founding father John Adams, wrote, I do not know whether Taft or the Titanic is likely to be the furthest reaching disaster. Ouch. But also, yeah, this is not going to be pretty. On November 5th, 1912, Election Day. Taft won the smallest percent of the vote received by an incumbent president ever. And Roosevelt won the greatest percent of the vote by a third-party candidate ever. But all they really managed to do was split the Republican Party and open the way for Wilson to the White House. Woodrow Wilson won the 1912 election with 6.3 million votes, followed by Progressive Party candidate Theodore Roosevelt with 4.1 million, Taft and the GOP with 3.5 million, and Eugene Debs and the Socialists with 900,000. And the Electoral College, it was a shellacking. 435 electoral votes for Wilson, 88 for Roosevelt, 8 for Taft, and 0 for Debs. The first great Republican progressive moment was over. Okay, so how had America changed during the four years of the Taft administration? Well, two new states had been added, New Mexico and Arizona, in 1912, bringing the total number of states to 48, 
which means the entire lower 48 states are states now. This also marks the end of adding new states for quite a while. We won't turn Alaska and Hawaii into states until 1959. Closer to home, Taft's wife Nellie, happy to become the first lady she had so long dreamed of becoming, left a permanent stamp on Washington, D.C. when she played a leading role in planting the capital's famous cherry blossom trees, gifted by Japan in 1912. A brilliant bit of so-called landscape diplomacy. Thanks for the trees, Nellie. Internationally, the old Ottoman Empire continued to fall apart, with Italy grabbing Libya in 1911, and Mexico, right across the border, collapsed into revolution in 1910. I... Don't often plug other podcasts on here, but if you want to learn more about the Mexican Revolution, I highly recommend Season 9 of the Revolutions Podcast. It is a crazy story, compellingly told, and it is my single favorite season of podcasting anywhere. That's the Mexican Revolution, Season 9 of the Revolutions Podcast by Mike Duncan. Check it out. The election of 1912 was definitely a low point for Taft. Dragged through the mud and abandoned by his best friend, it might not have looked like there was much of a political future left. But, well, passion's cool with time. Roosevelt would never reconcile with Taft, but the American people would. And, in time, Taft would get what he'd always wanted in the first place. A nomination to be Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Taft had dreamed of becoming the nation's top jurist since he was a boy, and his father taught him that nothing was nobler. And I mean, it is a pretty sweet job. It's an unelected, lifetime appointment, answerable to no one, and ruling on issues of the greatest national import. It's kind of the closest you get to being a king in the United States of America. And even as president, Taft had always been angling for earning the chief justiceship once he was out of office. In 1910, he even appointed 65-year-old Edward White chief justice on the presumption that, at 65 years old, Edward would soon die or retire, and then Taft could take the job. But Edward surprised everyone when he kept living for another decade. In 1921, Edward finally died and Taft knew that his last best chance of earning the chief justiceship was at hand. While the wait had been longer than anticipated, it might have been perfect timing. By 1921, Woodrow Wilson was finally out of office, and a fellow Republican, Warren G. Harding, was president. Harding played coy for a moment, but who was he kidding? Everybody knew Taft would be great in the role. Taft was nominated and confirmed by the Senate on the same day, imagine that, June 30th, 1921. The Senate's vote was 61 to 4, with three progressive Republicans and one Southern Democrat voting against him. As Chief Justice, Taft set his sights on making reforms to the Supreme Court, and he succeeded in leaving two legacies behind, increased judicial independence and a shiny new courthouse. The increased judicial independence basically boils down to a change in how many cases and which ones the court heard. Before Taft's reforms, the court heard 500 cases in a single year. After Taft's reform, it heard fewer than 200 cases a year. By being choosier in what cases it heard, 
Taft allowed the court to spend more time deliberating the truly momentous cases and increasing the stature of the court at the same time. As a jurist, Taft's opinions ran the gamut from good to ho-hum to regrettable. He upheld a Mississippi law that segregated schools, which is pretty bad. And he also upheld the power of Congress to regulate meatpacking and shipping, which is pretty good. He pretty squarely fit in that early 20th century mold of racist, progressive white dudes. He uh, also wrote the strongest opinion out there that Congress can't restrict a president's power to fire presidential appointees, which you may remember was the constitutional question at the center of Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial way back in 1868. So, you know, uh, fairly ho-hum. As for the new courthouse, well, this one kind of surprised me. But when Taft became Chief Justice in 1921, the court was still meeting in an uncomfortable, old, stuffy Senate chamber in the Capitol basement, which, you know, is not exactly the majestic image we picture when we think of the Supreme Court. And, well, Taft fixed that. Taft is the reason we have a big, fancy Supreme Court building today. His lobbying won passage of a bill to build the new courthouse in 1929. Construction began in 1932. And the Supreme Court building, sometimes known as the Marble Palace, opened in 1935. But Taft didn't live to see it. In 1930, Taft's health began to decline, and he retired from the bench. One month later, March 8, 1930, Taft died from complications of heart disease and high blood pressure. He is now one of only two presidents buried at Arlington National Cemetery, the other being John F. Kennedy. The 10 years Taft spent on the Supreme Court were the happiest days of his life. So, if you're going to remember three things about Taft, I would suggest, first, he was the first civilian governor of the Philippines at the end of the Philippine-American War. Two, his doomed political bromance with Teddy Roosevelt it put Taft in the White House and then kicked him out of it. And three, Taft's 10-year career as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court where he won funding for the modern Supreme Court building we know today and got the court out of the Senate basement in the process. And as for what lessons we can learn from Taft, I think I'll go with this. Americans love touchdown dances. We like to celebrate success. It's part of the human condition. We want to be happy and recognize progress. When you celebrate a win, it helps communicate how valuable that win was. Taft did not do these things. If Taft had done more to celebrate, recognize, and be involved in his administration's progressive gains, it may well have helped prevent the fracture of his party in 1912. So, don't fear the touchdown dance. Embrace the touchdown dance and shower recognition on your team for their hard work and support. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice, and tell your friends about the show. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Oscar Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. 
The primary biography for today's episode was William Howard Taft by Jeffrey Rosen. In our next episode, we will take a closer look at the rise of Taft with Notre Dame professor emeritus Perry Arnold. We'll discuss Taft's time in the Philippines, the influence of his wife and family, and whether his administration marks the end of the Republican progressive movement. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. Oh yeah, uh, one last thing. The story you've probably heard of Taft getting stuck in a bathtub, not true. The guy was large, but that never happened. Take care.